I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. And I will read verses 1 all the way through 13 just to help us set the context of where we find ourselves today. Hebrews chapter 8. Verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out to the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind, and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people." They shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now, That which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His holy word. I think it would be helpful for us as we come to look at verses 7 through 13 to just briefly recap the stream of thought that the writer was inspired to write to try to frame a little bit his argument and what he's seeking to accomplish in the minds of these first century Jews who were converted out of Judaism into Christianity. 
He has been laboring since chapter 6 rather hard because he sees that in chapter 6 there's something in their understanding that wants to conflate for some reason or another the categories in which they now stand as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and what they had formerly known under the Mosaic Covenant. It could have been pressures from their family we've observed. It could have been pressure you know, from their local rabbis. Um, it could have been a lot of different things. But there was something that was tempting them to give in to do what we don't have the details of. Was it going to be perhaps a recognition that even though we have the gospel of Jesus Christ and we have the pardon and the forgiveness of our sins, we still need to do A, B, and C. Perhaps it was a ritualistic washing, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Perhaps it was an observance of a feast day, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Whatever it was, the inspired writer of Hebrews sets out to show them, doesn't he, that dear friends, Dear first century Christians, this arrangement by which we have preached to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ is altogether different. He labored in chapter 7 to show that he's an altogether different kind of priest. He's not the priest of the Arianic priesthood that just has reformed the traditions of our fathers. No, no, no. He's a different kind of priest who we learned is representing a different kind of arrangement a different kind of covenant. It's a superior covenant. It's a superior arrangement. And today he uses very interestingly another passage from the Old Testament. And it doesn't surprise us, does it? Because he's been using passages from the Old Testament this entire time to substantiate the case that all of the Old Testament was pointing forward to the fulfillment of the Messiah, the king, priest, and this superior covenant, and it now has come. The text that he's using today, if you have a study Bible, you'll see, he begins to quote Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And this is very significant because it helps us allow an agreed-upon rule of interpretation amongst Protestants of allowing the New Testament to interpret, to explain the Old Testament. I think that's refreshing, brothers and sisters, because I don't have to start from scratch. (laughs) I have the interpretation of Jeremiah 31 right here in the words of the inspired writer of Hebrews. So what is it that he wants us to see in a comparison of what he is calling in verse number 6 a better covenant? And what he goes on to say is a second covenant in verse 7. Or in verse 13, a new covenant. What does he want us to, to see in comparison with the old covenant? The first covenant. Well, whatever it is, the main purpose of it we know, as has been his case all along in demonstrating a better priest, a better sacrifice, a superior covenant, is this to encourage us and to strengthen us in our pilgrim journey under this gospel covenant that we now exist in, that they existed in, in order to persevere unto the end. That's the main aim of this entire sermonic letter, to help them in their weariness as pilgrims on a journey to that celestial city. 
And so he's going to contrast now this covenant that he says in chapter 8 that Jesus Christ is a high priest of and that Jesus Christ administers as the mediator in order to help them to see you would never dare think back of going back to the old one because it is, as he says in the text, it has fault. It is faulty. It cannot do certain things. And that's exactly how I propose to you we approach verses 7 through 13 is looking at today in part one of a message I'm calling Jesus's mediated covenant, fully appreciating or fully understanding what was the defectiveness? What was the faultiness of the first covenant? Because only until we are properly grounded in understanding what the faultiness of it was, oh, brothers and sisters, can we truly adore and appreciate what we possess in the new covenant, the superior covenant, the one that Jesus Christ is the priest of and that he administers. And so in understanding the difference between that covenant, which we'll see in a moment what it is, and the new covenant, we become more grounded in understanding the entire redemptive story of God. We become more grounded in a very important aspect of Christian theology, the law and gospel distinction. There are many who confuse the law and the gospel. And why do they do that? Because they don't fully appreciate the relationship and the distinctions between the old covenant and the new covenant. These are some of the things that we'll further get built up in as we go through today's sermon and next week's. So the first part of considering Christ's mediated covenant, I think, demands that we look at the defectiveness and the weakness of the first covenant. Well, because it says in this conditional clause in verse 7 that that requires this. Let's consider, first of all, in verse 7, what is presented to us as a defective part of the covenant, let us consider, first of all, that it has a legal defection. It has a legal fault. Verse 7, the writer begins his explanation of the superior covenant that he's referring to and its necessity by first stating this conditional clause. Look at your Bibles. He says, if that first covenant had been faultless, here it is, then should no place have been given or been sought for the second. If then, if then. And so here at the very outset, there is a sign to the first covenant in this conditional clause, this Mosaic covenant, a fault, a defect. What does he mean by the first covenant? Well, the writer simply means the covenant which he's been referencing all throughout this sermonic letter. And that is the Mosaic covenant. You remember in chapter 3, he's already been contrasting uh, Jesus Christ as a teacher to Moses. He's been heavily utilizing chapters 3, 4, and 5, the wilderness generation, who subsequently later they would have received the Mosaic Covenant. And so this first covenant is specifically the Mosaic Covenant, which had, in, and part of its uh, arrangement, the Levitical priesthood. And he's saying that it is defected. If it wasn't, then there would be no place to be talking in this letter about a need of a second covenant. And so it is to this defect 
It is to the fault of this covenant where we must now draw our attentions to. Because our text very clearly conditionally states, if it had no defect, there would be no need for Jesus to have a better and a new mediated covenant. Well, what is the primary defect of verse 7? The first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, part and parcel of a system in the Old Testament that was used as God appointed it to be used. What was its primary defect? What was its primary fault? Well, he has already been showing them, has he not, what its primary fault is? He did it in chapter 7, verse 11. Look at your Bibles there. There's another conditional clause in chapter 7, verse 11. If, therefore, perfection were or could be made by the Levitical priesthood, for under that the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek? So he's already hinting at the fact of one of its primary defects. It couldn't make people perfect as we've observed before. It could not amend, atone for moral guilt. The primary defect of the Mosaic covenant, which he is referring to this first covenant, it could not wash away moral pollution. It could not justify a person. It could not make them perfect. It could not sanctify the person. In other words, it could not save one's soul from the perpetual condemnation that accompanies one's conscience when they have broken the law of God. It could not make them perfect. And so there would have been this perpetual reminder that I'm under the displeasure of God because I've broken His law. The Mosaic Covenant's relationship to lawbreakers was and still remains today one-sided. And this was its defect. Condemnation, guilt, and legal punishment to all of those who committed trespasses against its stipulations and its law. That was its primary defect. There was no grace in the Mosaic Covenant. You do this and you will be blessed. You don't do this, you will be cursed. We read it in Jeremiah this morning. This is why it was faulty. This is why it needed something superior to it to come and do what it could not do. But let us be very clear about something right now because whenever we get into sermons talking about the failure, the faultiness, the defectiveness of the Mosaic Covenant, There is, by necessity, a discussion about the law and its connection to the Old Covenant. Brothers and sisters, we have to be clear about something in our understanding about the law of God. It wasn't the fault of the law. The law was not the problem. The problem was, as we're seeing in verse 7, the covenant arrangement, the covenant itself, which we're going to get to in a moment, it's legal confines its legal framework and then we'll see in verses 8 and 9 the second problem with it was the hearts of men it wasn't the law we know it's not the law because witness from elsewhere in scripture 1 Timothy 1.8 we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully Romans 7.12 wherefore it is declared the law is holy 
And the commandment is holy and just and good. And so the issue is not with the law. Rather, the issue or the defect was that the Mosaic Covenant lacked provisions to permanently purge or remove the moral guilt of those who broke the law and thus perpetually placed them under God's displeasure. Well, was there any relief from this predicament of those in that first covenant? Remember, brothers and sisters, these first century Jews, they grew up under the Mosaic Covenant. They were under this framework by which there was no relief from a permanent removal of their failures. Was there any relief or were there any provisions? Well, yes, there was. Yes, there most certainly was. In order to assist these poor creatures under such a dilemma, God in His wisdom and His grace provided what you're very familiar with, and that is the sacrificial system as an integral part of the Mosaic Covenant. And we've been looking at the priests who administered that sacrificial system in chapter 7. It was an integral part of the Mosaic Covenant to serve as a remedy. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down because this is one of the defects of the legal structure of that first covenant. It was a remedy by which temporal appeasement, temporal appeasement of God's justice against their individual and national sins could be granted. The rules for the sacrifices are detailed for us in the book of Leviticus, chapter 1 through 7, beginning with the burnt offerings. And it goes through chapters 1 through 7. It concludes with the trespasses offering. And all and some of these sacrifices had to be repeated sometimes throughout the year, multiple times on the Sabbath day in the morning, the burnt offering, and in the evenings. It had to be performed at Passover. It had to be performed at the Feast of the Moons, the Feast of the Tabernacles. Why did it have to be repeated again and again? Because it stresses the fact that that remedy to help them with the weight and the perpetual guilt of their failures before a thrice holy God was but only a temporal appeasement to His wrath. I think it's helpful for us. It, it helped me as I was studying this. What is appeasement? Well, appeasement, what the sacrificial things are doing in this legal covenant arrangement called the first covenant, which we're seeing is defective and weak. The appeasement is this. It's a concession that's granted to potential enemies with the goal of maintaining peaceful terms. And that's what those things did. You deserve, according to the legal arrangement I made with you, to be obliterated. But I'm going to provide a means through the sacrificial system where my wrath and my judgment against you lawbreakers shall be temporarily appeased so that there can be peace between us. The animal sacrifices as part and parcel of this first covenant, this defective legal arrangement that God made with His people. From the very first use of them was only temporal appeasement of God's wrath against sin. Partially and only for a short time. And hence the need of its repetition year after year. And so the temporal appeasement was the first, I would say, legal defect of the first covenant that has to be dealt with. 
But the sacrificial system offering temporal appeasement was only one of two purposes of the sacrificial system. The second purpose, which shows us again another aspect of the faultiness of the problem with the first covenant in chapter 7 that had to be dealt with, that required the second covenant with a superior priest and a superior sacrifice. The second purpose of the sacrificial system of this first covenant was what we could call, I believe, representative atonement. The sacrifices you see, and in fact, their entire sacramental system, including the temple, the priesthood, circumcision, all of these things were only shadows. They were only symbols, which were intended by God to point their conscience to something greater, the substance of what they pointed them to. We know in Hebrews 9, 12 and 13, our inspired writer demonstrates for us that the blood of the sacrificial animals under the administration of this covenant, it wasn't sufficient to perfectly purify the people from their sins, i.e. chapter 7 verse 11, i.e. the faultiness, the weakness of it, the unprofitableness of it, the need, the requirement that it be replaced and be dealt with. The insufficiency of the sacrificial system should have been known by all of the Israelites. Why? Well, because, beloved, their prophets repeatedly interpreted these shadows for them and thereby pointing them continually to the substance which they typified. Regarding circumcision, just one example, Jeremiah 4.4, the prophet is declaring and crying out to the rebellious people under that first covenant, circumcise yourself to the Lord, circumcise your heart, ye men of Judah and people of Jerusalem, or God's wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. What is he doing there? He's showing them that this ceremonial ritual of circumcision is pointing to something more that God wants i.e. he's pointing them and he's illustrating for them as he's interpreting these shadows the limits, isn't he? The boundaries, the insufficiencies of the covenant arrangement that they had with God. The circumcision of the flesh can't do what God is calling you now to do to circumcise your heart. Oh, that's a weakness of this agreement, this arrangement we have with God, this first covenant. It cannot circumcise my heart. It can only circumcise my flesh externally. These things were representing something greater. They were representing an atonement that had not yet been provided. And thus, through the very sacrificial system, not only was, and they knew this, a temporal appeasement because we have to do it again and again and again, but also, it's not finally, totally perfecting me. Isaiah in chapter 53 verses 4 and 5 gives us another example of how the prophets were interpreting the limits of the sacrificial system regarding substitutionary sacrifice. The prophet declares, Surely he he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. He's of course here referring to the Messiah that was going to be 
sacrificed. Well, why would a Messiah need to be sacrificed in such a way if our current arrangement with God is going to give us the blessings of God? Again, through the interpretation of the limits of the sacrificial system, they were reminded again and again, these things cannot do what God was requiring of you to do. That's a horrible predicament to be in. To be given a law and to say, follow this jot, follow this tittle. And if you do, you'll be blessed. But I can't do it. Circumcise your heart. I can't circumcise my heart. You see, the faultiness, the defectiveness that this legal arrangement called the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant created for all of those under its administration. I don't know about you, dear brother, but that doesn't sound very gracious to me. That sounds like a heavy weight. A heavy burden. As I was explaining this, Somewhat this morning uh, to my eight-year-old, I said, use your imagination for a moment and and consider the the dilemma that this would have caused taking the very precious, most precious animal that you've raised and that you as a little eight-year-old girl would have been attached to. And you've got to make this journey, this inconvenient, burdensome journey. Why do you have to do it? Because the weight of God's judgment upon me is hovering upon me. He told me if I don't do this, He will judge me. I have to make this arduous journey to the temple. And I have to bring this, this little animal, this lamb perhaps, that I've raised and I've nurtured and I've bottle fed. And then, and then I have to give it over to a priest and it's crying out, it's bellowing, it's wailing because it's frightened. And then he's going to slit its throat and the blood's going to be poured out and then it's going to be burned. You get a picture Right? Of what this legal structure, this first covenant demanded of them. It brings to mind, I think, um, very clearly that text in John 1.17 where he was driving home the point that the law, this law that we're talking about, this relentless, inflexible, demanding covenant it was given by Moses but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ get a better picture of what is meant by that as the prophets repeatedly interpreted and pointed them to the reality that the Mosaic covenant its priesthood and its sacrifices could not administer the substance which those things only pointed to which is fool and final rest, full and final pardon of your sins. Consider how that year after year those sacrifices would become a nagging and a perpetual reminder of their repeated failures and furthermore that no full or final atonement had yet been made to relieve them of such a condition. Now, prior to moving on to our next heading considering the fault of them under the covenant, we've just looked at Two aspects of the defect of this covenant. It's temporal appeasement. It can only temporal appease. And it's representative atonement. It can't fully atone. It's only pointing to that which is the substance of grace. That is Christ and His atonement. 
Prior to moving on to our next heading, we must pause and we must ask ourselves, was this defective covenant which was unable to administer the substance of Christ through those sacrifices and His free grace a mistake on God's part? Yeah, John 1.17 says that the law was given by Moses. But where did Moses get it from? He got it from God. Did God make a mistake, Brother Chris? Well, the answer is clearly no. God doesn't make mistakes, children. While the first covenant was indeed faulty in the ways that we just observed, it was perfect with respect to its own particular use and intended end. I was trying to explain that to an eight-year-old this morning. I'll give you the illustration I gave her. I don't know how helpful it would be. But I said, you know, at Daddy's workshop, I got the big 500-gallon diesel tank. Would you go to that diesel tank and get a glass of water for a parched, you know, thirst that you wanted to quench? Well, the answer is no. Because it's a diesel tank. It's designed and it's meant to distribute and preserve diesel fluid, not water. No, you would go where? Inside to the reverse osmosis, <laughs> right? Drinking fountain at the sink to get a drink of water. Brothers and sisters, the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant Connie, by God was not a mistake. It was never designed to provide the substance of salvific grace. It was never designed to administer the substance of Christ. Only point to it. Point to Him. Point to the superior prophesied sacrifice to the Messiah. And point to the better, sufficient, all-sufficient covenant that He administered. The Old Covenant was never intended to administer that which was, it was not designed to perform. The Old Covenant system could never save anyone because it was never designed by God to do so. Salvation by faith alone in the promised Messiah alone was and has always been administered by the Spirit of Christ through all ages via the superior covenant that God made within Himself to save rebellious, hardened sinners. That we call a better covenant. He's using the word new. We'll deal with that next week. A new covenant. Or in Christian theology, it's called a covenant of grace. What is grace? It's the opposite of cursing. Grace is just that. It's getting what you don't deserve. That covenant by which salvation is administered is never administered through the legal framework of the first covenant. It can never be administered by it. This has huge implications theologically on the church, the nature of the church, the distinction of the law and the gospel. Who are members of the church who have an interest in, an ownership in the covenant of grace, the superior covenant, the things that we're discussing right now. The old covenant, as I said, can never save anyone. We have been learning from the writer's use thus far in Hebrews from Zephaniah 3.17. And this is just a partial list I scratched up. 
Isaiah 8.18, Isaiah 41.8, 2 Samuel 7, Psalms 2.7, Psalms 22, Psalms 45, Psalms 95, Psalms 102, Psalms 110. You get the picture that the better covenant that he's describing, the new covenant that he's describing, the second covenant that he is describing being communicated here is that which was established in eternity past and brought about all throughout redemptive history and all of these covenants were subservience to it. They could not do what it alone could do. What do we mean when we say that they were subservience to it? Well, they were subservience in the sense that since they could not provide the substance of grace, they pointed to it. They were tutors. They were teachers, as Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says later in Galatians, to show and point to something that they themselves could not do. And so these covenants were used in redemptive history by God, but never to dispense, never to administer salvific grace, only to point outside of themselves to this blessed covenant that we've been learning about all throughout this letter, which rests within only God. And so praise be to God. Amen. Praise be to God that the the promises of those covenants pointed to are now realized in a more fuller way. They were hinted at through the Old Testament time period, that dispensation of time. They were pointed to. But what's so, we'll get to this next week, what's so grand and fabulous about this time period in which we live on this side of the cross is that the veil's been pulled back. And now we see the whole story. We see it's, it's not so much as we'll get it next week, not that it's brand new and it's never been in operation, but this superior covenant that's been administering salvific grace through faith alone and the promised Messiah alone. Oh, now it's not shadows. Now it's not uh, figures. No, it's all realized in its fullness and in its power in the person and the glory of Jesus Christ. We should be thankful for that, brothers and sisters. This should inflame our hearts to know that we have the New Testament record here now. And we could read it and we can make sense of these things and, 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 and what they meant and what they were pointing to. As we move on up into this point in verse 7, we've considered, if you're taking notes, some of the legal defects of the first covenant and why it was faulty and a need for a superior covenant. Now let's move on to verses 8 and 9 where we see a different dimension to why this first covenant arrangement in the Old Testament was defective. We've been considering up until this point the legal structure of the covenant. It could not do what only the covenant of grace could do. However, now we're going to consider its spiritual defect. And so when we look at verse 7, Why was it faulty? It had a legal structure that could never do what only the covenant of grace could do. Ah, but now we get to verses 8 and 9 and it shows us an aspect of it that it was spiritually defective. Legal defectation and legal inabilities. I mean, I'm sorry, legal defectives and spiritual defectives. And that's brought out for us, I believe, in verses 8. Look at your Bible where it says, finding fault with them. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Who's the them? The them were the members under that time period, under that covenant arrangement, that Mosaic covenant. 
Not according, verse 9, to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Brothers and sisters, these texts are clearly pointing our attention to what we commonly call the effects of original sin. Or that is the natural depravity of man. And this is a cornerstone of biblical theology, which is the belief that as a result of the fall of our first parents into sin, all men afterwards are blind and deaf to spiritual truth. In other words, their minds are unavoidably darkened by sin. Their hearts are corrupt and evil. They're not as evil as they could be, but they are evil in the sense that they lack moral perfection. Now this, I know, is offensive to modern man in the Western church. But this is what the Bible teaches. Genesis 8.21, The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Ecclesiastes 9.3, The heart of the sons of men is full of evil. And madness is in their heart while they live. And after that, you got to love Ecclesiastes, they go to the dead. Titus 1.15, Unto the regenerate all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. Even their mind and conscience is defiled. And before any of us in here think, well, I'm of the regenerate, you know, I'm, I'm better than that. Remember the witness from Ephesians 5.18, Ye were sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. This truth about mankind is the exact same truth of those who lived under the administration of this Mosaic covenant. And they, like all who live today, had hard, rebellious hearts. And think with me just for a moment how that time and time again these chosen people of God witness His extraordinary manifestations of His power and His glory and they drifted off into idolatry. Isn't that rather astonishing to you? I mean, I don't know about you, but I would like to think that if I was at the foot of Mount Sinai witnessing the the frightful exposition of the glory of God in concert with His warrior host of angels, that even though you know that the legal structure couldn't do internally what only it could do outwardly, I would like to think that that would set me on the straight and narrow for probably the rest of my life. It's astonishing, is it not? To see how they continued after that to drift away from the one true and living God. But this is what Scripture teaches us. They teach us that even after witnessing such splendor, such glory, the deceitfulness of sin and their own corrupted, rebellious hearts turned against God. Going back to what we said in Jeremiah 17.9, it proves it true. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? But here is the important observation we want to make from verse 8. Where there was fault within them, And then verse 9 again, fought within them because they continue not in the covenant. As now it it, it turns, it turns this whole question we're answering what was defective with the first covenant. Now it turns the issue just a little bit, gives us a different angle, a different approach to glance at it. As we recognize, brothers and sisters, their inability to receive and obey God's law, it serves as a perfect example of another defect that was part of the first covenant. That system could not and did not have the ability to remedy 
that which was wrong with their hearts. It did not provide a remedy to change their hardened heart. The Mosaic Covenant, though ordained of God for the purposes during that time, made no provisions for the ability in and of itself to keep the conditions that it demanded. It lacked the power and the fullness of the spiritual requirement to change a man's heart. Are you seeing that? They, they, they had so much light. They were given so much provision. Why in the world was not their heart changed? Because that legal framework, that old covenant system, couldn't change their hearts. A supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit of God had to change their heart and circumcise their heart. Well, where does that grace come from? That grace is dispensed. It is administered by the Spirit of Christ. By Christ, according and established upon the means and the requirements of the covenant of grace. The first covenant was defective because the way it was legally arranged for the purposes and according to the wisdom of God. And it was defective because it could not do only what the covenant of grace, what Christ and His superior covenant could do. Even though Jehovah promised blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience, by and large, when we read our Bibles, there was only a few exceptions. And that's why we read in verse 9, the people did not, they did not continue in the covenant, even though they had everything in the Mosaic covenant in order to what? Teach them they ought to. To persuade them to obey, it was weak. It was unprofitable. Thank God that even in that dispensation of time, there were some who the Spirit of God gave eyes of faith. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They could, as administered from Christ's throne for His sheep, they could see past, could they not? the shadows and the sacrifices while the rest of their countrymen who were under that covenant arrangement doing the things that God requires still had a hard heart. The native and the original hardness of man's heart was not affected in the least by all the bells and the smells of old covenant Judaism and the covenantal structure that it had not the power to change. That's absolutely true today too, you know. There is some scoff at the term, and uh, I think it's a helpful term. Uh, we don't want to quibble about terms sometimes, but this is, this is something we should recognize in the Bible. There is, since the garden, a covenant of works. You do this and you'll live, and you do this and you'll die. And every man, woman, boy, and girl is under that covenant of works. And there is only one hope you have. It is not ever going to change by you following all of the jots and tittles of the law and the rules in order to live. Because you know your conscience bears witness with you that you cannot do it. And so what do you do? You look outside of yourself. And this is what your parents, this is what ministers of the gospel are pointing you to, to the all-sufficient grace, that which is able to save your souls and do that which you cannot do in the Lord Jesus Christ. The covenant arrangements being spoke of in verse 7, among many other things, was designed for a purpose. 
It was designed to engage their external senses as lessons of God's holiness. As lessons of God's justice upon all sin. And it will serve as an incriminating witness upon all those who although they were given so much light, nonetheless they refused it because of the love of their deceitful lies and their sins. In other words, it was a religion of the flesh and not of the heart. Ah, but as we turn a corner in verse number 10 next week, that's not the case with the better covenant, the second covenant, the new covenant, which does what none of these could do. It does supernaturally take a religion of the flesh and makes it an inward religion of the heart. And it does for man that he cannot do for himself. And it's all a free gift of grace, which we'll see next week in Jeremiah chapter 31. Beloved, possessing a better understanding of the defects of the old covenant in conclusion helps us in many ways as believers today. It will help us become better grounded in the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. There is, we know as Protestants, nothing that you can add to faith in order to make you justified. And furthermore, there's nothing that you can do to add to faith, to persevere in the faith, in order that you make it to the end. I am very, very concerned amongst the Reformed community today by which men are articulating the doctrine of final consummated salvation, dear brother, by saying that there is some part you contribute to that in order to make it to the end. It's confusing law and gospel. It's going to place the consciences of men and women under a yoke that they cannot bear. But glory be to Christ, He bore it all. When we say grace, we mean grace. This is a gospel issue. And the more you understand the defectiveness of the old covenant arrangement, you will not be hoodwinked. You will not be with clever words inclined to look favorably upon some aspects of the covenant arrangement that God made with the Old Testament Israelites. No, when you understand the fundamental basics of allowing the New Testament to interpret these things for you in the Old Testament, brothers and sisters, you don't have to have a Ph.D., no, you would just, you would just very be enabled by the Holy Spirit to understand that, wait a minute, what you're saying in some way or another is painting that covenant in a favorable light, but if it was so favorable, if it was so good, why did it have to be replaced? It had to be replaced because it could not do what only Christ and Christ alone can do. And it help you, I think, understanding the defectiveness of the covenant of Works or the the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which we're looking at today, it helps you appreciate the work of God's Spirit throughout redemptive history. It helps you to see, in some sense, that when He saved people, He did not do it through the legal means of that covenant. It was a covenant that superseded it. It was a covenant outside of it. It helps you to see that, and you get a better understanding of how people were saved in the Old Testament times. And lastly, I think it helps us to better grasp the continuity and the discontinuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. This operation of this better covenant, this glorious work of salvation, isn't unique to the New Testament. It didn't pop up 
on the day of Pentecost. As we've been alluding to today, and we'll look at more next week, it was an operation even during the time of the Old Testament. How else was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saved? They were saved by this better second covenant, which dispenses, which administers, which gives free grace. All capital letters free. Completely free. And so examining what we call covenant theology and just in some ways today, chapter 7 through 9, helps ground us in a better understanding of the big picture of how God has worked throughout redemptive history. Praise be to God as we come to an examination of what was so faulty in that first covenant, what it so lacked is made real in the covenant by which you and I stand by a confession and repentance of our sins and our belief upon the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. Praise be to God because that's where we're at today. I don't know about you, but when I look at all of those defective things of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, I give God all the more honor and glory that He opened my eyes, He circumcised my heart to do what I couldn't do for myself. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, O God, we come before You now and Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Father, that it interprets itself when we come to passages such as Hebrews 8 and we see that there is appointed a defect to the Mosaic Covenant. Lord, we understand that there is, of course, something that it could not do. And and as we talked about in other places of Scripture today, We know, O God, that there was something else in operation. There was something else that you had planned in order to bring all of those, all of those who Christ died for upon the cross into your family. We thank you, Lord, that we stand on this side of the cross. We thank you, Lord, that we have more illumination. We have more insight to the workings of your redemptive plan all throughout history. And I pray, O oh God, that you would use it. You would use it to, 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 to mature us, to make us more zealous for the purity of the gospel, that you would, Lord, use it to help us to be, uh, Lord, uh, craftsmen of your word and Bereans of your word, that you would use it, O oh God, to further perpetuate truth and, and preserve it for the future generations. Lord, we pray that At the end of the second part next week, according to your will, as we consider the marks or the qualifications of the new covenant, Lord, we pray that it would foster within us just organically greater affections for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray that it would melt our hearts, Lord, all over again for his love, for his church. We thank you. We humbly, Lord, worship you. And we ask, Lord, as we approach your blessed supper, that you would use it to minister to the hearts of your people here today. We do not know, Lord, who is weary. We do not know, Lord, the the weak, perhaps, of temptation that has been endured. Oh God, I pray, I pray that you would minister to your people today, that their souls may be fed and that they may cast all of their hope again, all, dear Lord, of their trust again upon the work of Jesus Christ and Him alone at the cross. Lord, may You accept our worship and may You bless the observance of Your supper, we pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen.